and gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! listeners this is jonah goldberg host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch and dispatch media come to the dispatch.com to sign up for the free stuff including our brand new newsletter from uh sarah isger called the sweep which gives you all of the um the deep deep punditry i won't even call it rank punditry that you need to understand how the campaign is going and um and uh you also can you know find the secret to life there too all right so uh i well, today's guest is somebody we wanted to have on for, for a very long time, and I'm, I'm mostly speaking in the royal we. Um, and uh, he is a sometimes colleague at the American Enterprise Institute, but his real home is as a sociologist at the University of Virginia and as a fellow at the Institute for Family Studies. And uh, this is going to be a blissfully, unless Brad has some profound things he wants to say about Donald Trump or the 2020 campaign, a punditry-free Largely punditry-free podcast for those of you craving the seriously wonk goodness. Um, uh, Brad Wilcox is uh, knows more about marriage uh, than anybody I know, and the stuff that he puts out is endlessly fascinating and interesting. And uh, welcome to the podcast, Brad. Uh, Jen, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me <clears throat> on today. Okay, so I have a I have a weird theory I want to float by you. Okay. Um, I am a, I am one of the last and only people I know who really cares about defending neoconservatism from its popular understanding today. The popular understanding is it's a bunch of bagel-snarfing warmongers who want to do th- bring democracy to the Middle East. But if you go back and you look at the original neocons who came 10 years before the foreign policy ones, there were people like Daniel Bell and Irving Kristol and Nat Glazer and uh, James Q. Wilson, Seymour uh, Martin Lipset, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And as William F. Buckley said, the real contribution of the neocons was that they brought the language of sociology to conservatism, that it had priorly been too Aristotelian. And uh, what these sort of former liberals and leftists brought was the language of academia, the language of sociology to buttress more traditional conservative arguments. Sure. And I, I honestly, I have no idea how you self-label, but when I read a lot of your stuff about marriage, one of the things that I like about it is that it's in its it's in many ways it's it's sort of in the purest tradition of the original neoconservatism, where you actually deploy data and analytics to buttress some things that a lot of people formerly just sort of took on faith or right. uh, based on a tradition. And um, so, why don't you just sort of start with the coldly empirical? case for why marriage is important, why conservatives like me, again, I don't want to label you, but the, you know, conservatives like me uh, need to sort of speak in the language that is still respected by progressives or whatever you want to call them about why marriage is important. Yeah, thanks, Jonah. I mean, I think marriage is important uh, because it gives meaning, direction, and purpose um, to adult lives, I think particularly to men's lives, um, even today in the 21st century, or maybe in some ways especially today. Um, and it's it's important also because it lends uh, strength and stability uh, to our family um, to our family lives in ways that really redound to the benefit of, of our kids. And so most fundamentally, marriage matters uh, because it's the best way 
um, that we know of, of, you know, giving our kids the financial, the social, the emotional, um, you know, support uh, that they need um, growing up. So th- that's a quick way to respond to your question. I mean, I think um, it's also important to sort of stress, you know, I think sometimes when you're talking about the importance of marriage, uh, people think that this is kind of a conservative thing, or it's a Christian thing or something like that. And, you know, they don't really recognize, they don't really appreciate that marriage is a cross-cultural institution. Uh, we see marriage, obviously, in China. We see marriage in India. We see marriage in Egypt. And the point here that I'm sort of moving towards is that's because, I think, in their own different ways, very different cultures, very different civilizations have all kind of come up with this, this institution that, you know, anchors and guides the relationship between adults in ways that stabilizes um, their relationships, both for themselves, but especially, you know, for their kids and for their kin. Um, And so we should appreciate here that, you know, marriage is not simply, um, you know, a Western or or a conservative or a Christian institution. It's really, it's a human institution um, that serves many different goods um, in in the social world. Yeah, this is a point I try to get at a little bit in my book, um, that in a, in a, in a sense, the what we call the traditional two-person marriage, man and a woman, um, it's not wholly unnatural, but it's not wholly natural either. Sure. There have been lots of generations, thousands of generations of trial and error, with polygamy, polyandry, all these different kinds of things. And it just turned out that the more successful, successful societies tended to have the this this kind of institution formed in it. And I think sometimes people bristle at the idea that this is just some arbitrary way of organizing life when in fact, enormous amounts of trial and error went into it. And it turned out this, this system worked better than the other systems. Right. Better in in some ways. Right. And so there's a great new book by Nicholas Christakis at Yale called Blueprint on the evolutionary origins of a good society. And he makes a lot of points in the book. But one point he kind of makes is that when it comes to kind of like um, organizing our sexual, romantic and familiar relationships, we can either kind of privilege sort of marriage, stability, fidelity, monogamy, paternal investment you know, sort of one way of organizing things, or we can uh, prioritize sort of, you know, sexual experimentation, um, multiple partners, sort of, um, you know, maximizing a strategy that allows people to kind of, you know, do their own things uh, on their own terms in the romantic and the sexual arena. Um, And if you pursue that latter strategy, you're going to have a society where the relations between women and men are much less profound and the ties between especially dads and their kids are much more attenuated. And obviously over the last 50 years, we've been kind of oscillating between those two different dynamics. And there's obviously a lot of confusion out there about which of these two approaches to sort of organizing our relationships, family life and sexuality should be, you know, operative, um, should be kind of dominant. And, you know, um, obviously you, you can guess where I come down, but it's just interesting. I think that Christakis is just basically making the point that you do see these two different approaches embodied in different cultures. Um, mm-hmm. But if you want to maximize, again, sort of stability, monogamy, paternal involvement, 
um, it's, it's sort of marriage um, is, you know, is the way to do that. Um, right, so let's, we, I want to circle back to some of that, but I, I want to just sort of provide a concrete point to the, like my, my neocon pigeonholing of you, which is, you know, uh, there are all sorts of metaphysical, traditional, religious, whatever label you want to put them, highfalutin or, or, or spiritual arguments for marriage. But um, my understanding is that if you, um, if you just look at it through the eyes of an economist, there's about as much, if I have this right, there's about as much benefit to being married, if you get married in the right sequence and all of that, um, as there is to say, going to college, right? But we live in a society, at least for men, um, we live in a society that, because it's so meritocratic, sure. we emphasize constantly, go to college, go to college, go to college. Right. No right. one's allowed to say, get married, right? Right. Well, in, in general, it really depends upon the outcome. So in some cases, and this shouldn't surprise anyone, you know, the college degree is more valuable than the, than the, uh, the you know, the marriage um, certificate. Um, but when it comes to things like sort of, um, you know, graduating from high school, when it comes to um, things like avoiding depression, delinquency, et cetera, it's often the case that family structure is a more powerful predictor than, say, parental education. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, there are some outcomes, you know, like SATs or GPAs where it's, you know, it's, it's that parental education that's more important um, in predicting the outcome than is um, whether or not the parents are married. But the way I would just sort of talk about it is that, you know, things like work and education, which I, most people on the left and right would agree are important, do predict a lot of outcomes for, you know, for kids and adults. But marriage and marital stability also predict a lot of important outcomes, um, sometimes in ways that are more powerful than education, sometimes in ways that are less powerful. But there's a mm -hmm. consistent link on most of the outcomes that concern us, um, including economic ones you just touched on, um, between um, marriage and, um, you know, and people's uh, outcomes. It's also, I think, interesting to know, it's not just sort of the individual story here about how we know that. Um, you know, men who are in their late 20s tend to make about $15,000 more when they're stably married than their peers who don't have that. Um, it's not just these sort of individual outcomes that matter. It's also a kind of a communal story. Mm -hmm. And so Raj Chetty, who's at Harvard, as you know, in economics, has been looking at sort of a lot of the factors at the community level that matter for, uh, for communities. And what you see in that research is that it's often the case the share of two-parent families in a, in a community or in a neighborhood is one of the top three predictors of things like mobility for poor kids. It is being raised the 20th percentile growing up, but reaching the top 20% as an adult. So in his work, he finds that family structure at the community level is actually the, the, the top predictor hmm. of whether or not a community is fostering that kind of rags to riches mobility, that kind of American dream story. Um, and then I've looked at his data, the neighborhood level, and found that it's one of the top three predictors of um, incarceration. So the more two-parent families there are in a community, uh, the less uh, likelihood there is that a, a boy growing up in a, in a community will end up spending time in, uh, in prison or in jail. So the point I'm simply making here is that, that marriage matters for adults, uh, for kids, and also for communities as well in very important ways. Yeah, you had a, you linked to it on Twitter, you, had, you pointed to this piece about how um, 
the decline in baseball playing, which is something I've used as an analogy from a, now I'm spacing on the, there's an African-American columnist for the Washington Post who wrote this column a decade ago now, who was trying to figure out why African-American participation had fallen so much in professional baseball. It's like the lowest in, since the seventies. And there were a lot of different explanations, but one of the explanations that really struck home with me was the rise in uh, single mother headed households. And that, you know, football and basketball are games that you learn from your peers, but baseball, because it requires a certain amount of patience and mastery of numbers and you have to sit down and learn it and you play, you learn it from your dad. And if you don't have a dad there, um, you're just not going to learn baseball. And um, this, I mean, so this gets to sort of the, you know, one of the core points of, of my book that I learned a lot of stuff from you when I was working on it is that, you know, as you're talking about communities, um, the family is sort of the, I mean, there's so much, there's so much treacly boilerplate, particularly from the right about family values with no follow through about what they actually mean by that. And there's a certain amount of just sort of nostalgia box checking. Sure. But if you actually look at, there's concrete data that, that says, um, you know, as Charles Murray used to put it, there's a well-established finding in the social science literature um, that says you're not going to find a lot of single men coaching Little League or coaching soccer, right? It's, it's most men who get involved in their communities do it because our wives tell us to. Right. You know, and when you break that down, there's all these cascading effects throughout civil society that are as a result of it. Um, but what do you do about it? I mean, how do you actually fix that problem? Well, so, yeah, and, and just to kind of follow up on your point, uh, research by Kevin Stewart suggests that kids are boys, I should say, are about 25% more likely to play baseball um, when they're living with their dads and that there's a link between having a father at home and succeeding in baseball. Actually, there was also a New York Times uh, piece not too long ago that found that even in the NBA today, we're still seeing, uh, or should say we are seeing, um, that players across the spectrum, um, you know, and across racial lines are more likely to be in the NBA um, if they hail from a, you know, a two-parent um, family. Um, so that's, that story is even applicable, you know, in the NBA as well. And of course, as you know, um, since you have a teenage daughter, what's happened in the last 15 or 20 years, unfortunately, is that sports for kids have become a lot more expensive, a lot more time intensive, right? Mm -hmm. So parents are shuttling their kids from one, you know, athletic event to another, they're going, driving across the state, they're driving yeah. across states, you know, they're paying hundreds or thousands of dollars, you know, every year for their kids to compete in different, you know, athletic programs from, uh, from gymnastics to, uh, to soccer. And so because of that, it's, it's no surprise that kids who have two parents at home um, have more time and money kind of standing behind them. And then we're right. likely to be able to do well um, as high school students. Um, right, and there's nothing romantic or poetic about that. It's just yeah. a division of labor point that if you have exactly. two people, you right. can juggle schedules better than one person. Right. So the question is, so how do we get? Um, so is the question sort of how do we get marriage um, back on track? Is that the question? Yeah, I guess that's the. Well, so before we get to that, we should save solutions for the end. You know, we have, give something, a, give listeners a hope to, you know to find out how the story ends at the end. Um, uh, you know, the other point that you've written a bunch about and that, um, and so is Charles Murray is this 
problem of how elites won't preach what they practice. Right. right? That, that the top 20%, I mean, you, you run through it. I mean, like, right. so, where so is divorce according to the socioeconomic yeah. ladder and that kind of thing? So, I mean, just for instance, today, you know, right now, a clear majority of college-educated adults are married and, and will stay married um, for, you know, their, their lives. Um, so, um, and it's, it's, it's important to note here, too, that divorce has come down since the 1980s among college-educated Americans. And you can see this even kind of in the political arena where, you know, we had um, a speaker like Newt Gingrich, who had obviously a number of divorces and remarriages. Um, and, you know, by contrast, you know, um, Paul Ryan, who was from a younger generation, you know, same party, um, has been stably married. So, so it's just an example of how among elites sure. sort of marriages stabilized from the 70s excesses, 80s excesses to... to when to I was in grade school in the 1970s, I would say one out of three... One out of two kids were from divorced families, and maybe even more than that. Um, right. And now, I have I have a few friends who've been divorced, but it's nothing like the scope of all of that. You know, from when I was a kid. You know, exactly. When I was being, you know, when I was growing up in Connecticut, you know, the vast majority of my friends' parents um, either had gotten divorced or got divorced after I got to know them. Um, whereas today, you know, the vast majority of our friends, our peers are stably married. So again, among college educated Americans, we've seen kind of either an explicit or an implicit appreciation of marriage, um, and of the way in which it gives their own lives stability and it gives their kids the best shot, um, at, you know, realizing the American dream and just, and flourishing more generally. So, that's that's an important part of the story, um, but we've seen, as you know, in the last thirty years, working class and poor Americans kind of continue to drift away from marriage. Um, and so, you know, about half of um, women who are high school educated will have their kids, you know, um, outside of marriage. Um, and it's obviously higher among women who don't have a high school degree. Um, only about ten percent of babies born to college-educated moms, by contrast, today are born outside of marriage. Um, so, you know, there's just a huge class divide that's emerged um, in recent decades. Um, and the irony too is that elites have difficulty, as Charles Murray noted, preaching what they practice. And in fact, they often do the opposite. So, we did a, a survey in California uh, late last year, and we found that. College-educated Californians are about 20% more likely to embrace family diversity as kind of like their, their public ethic that, you know, we should celebrate family diversity compared to less educated Californians. But then it turns out that they were not only were they more likely to personally embrace having kids in marriage, they were also 20 percentage points more likely to be in a stable marriage compared to their less educated Californian fellow citizens. So again, mm -hmm. there's sort of this talking left on family issues but walking right in family mm -hmm. practice that we see. Um, and I think this is just enormously destructive because, you know, our pop culture, our media, our public schools, our universities are preaching this message about family diversity, um, about kind of being accepting, inclusive, you know, et cetera, um, which doesn't really help orient people when it comes to how they go about forming and sustaining their own families. Um, and yet, when it comes to their own personal lives, um, you know, there's a huge orientation if they have kids to 
both getting married in the first place and to avoiding divorce in the second mm-hmm. place. So that's and getting getting married in the success sequence, right? Of getting educated, then getting married, then having kids. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's um, and you know I I don't think people. I mean Ross Delft that wrote a, a column a while back, kind of talking about how sort of social liberalism is a form of you know elites sort of basically keeping working class and poor Americans down mm-hmm. um, because. You know, if people are not getting married and they're not providing their kids sort of the best, you know, ideal um, family upbringing, and therefore those kids are less likely to compete against elites. Now, obviously, uh, Ross is being, you know, kind of tongue in cheek there. Um, And there's nothing I think really intentional about what's happening. But I think the tragedy here is the cultural messages that we're sending tend to reinforce a lot of the class divides that the elites profess to be worried about. Right. Um, and, and we should say just, you know, this is something I, I think is because there are a few things more personal than family. When you, I mean, I'm sure you've run across this more than I because this is your bread and butter. But when you talk about ideal family forms or optimal family form, all these kinds of things, people who are raised in, in a different kind of family form take personal offense. And we're talking about grand statistical trends here. There are plenty of successful people who come from sure. single mom, and that doesn't mean their single mom was a bad person. It doesn't mean that she should have stayed in a bad marriage or an abusive marriage or any of those kinds of things. But you know, the you know, for example, the some of the more depressing stuff I find is like the data showing that kids in growing up with stepfathers tend to have, or adopted kids and adopted kids tend to have vast resources spent on them because there's a huge barrier to entry to adopting in the first place. Just not living with your actual biological, both parents, particularly your father, statistically there are going to be negative outcomes, more likely to be negative outcomes than against the, you know, the, the traditional sort of norm. I mean, do I have that right? Yeah, you have all that right. And so and I, and I was raised by a single mom. And I think my mom did a good job with me and my sister. Um, I have nothing against, you know, single moms or single parents or, you know, kind of, you know, anyone. But, I, you know, the, the point is that I'm also a sociologist. And it is the case, you know, that kids are more likely to flourish uh, when they're raised by their own stably married parents. And, um, yeah, we, we do see that kids who are raised in step families, that kids who are um, who are raised in adoptive households um, with two loving parents, often, as you noted, more educated, more affluent than the normal parents, um, are still much more likely to struggle in school. They're much more likely to have, you know, parents getting phone calls from the principal or from the teacher or emails nowadays, um, you know, worrying about uh, homework issues or even more so behavioral issues. Um, and so, you know, again, the point is, is that you know, on average, um, it's better for kids to have their own to be married parents. Um, and I think we could do a much better job of communicating that in, in a positive and constructive way um, to to the American public. So just out of curiosity, is there earlier you were talking about how, you know, uh, you know, marriage is a cross cultural thing. And of course it is. And um, and how it's the traditional two-parent family is is better in some ways, but 
not in other ways, or, you know, it depends on how you define better. That's all fair. But do we know, you know, the, the nuclear family of mom and dad and X number of kids, but no uncles, aunts, grandparents hanging around, um, has kind of been an, at least a cultural norm since what, the forties or fifties, um, do we have data about how much better kids would do when they have lots of aunts and uncles and cousins multi-generational around versus sort of atomized just two parents? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, and Jonah, and I, and I, um, so this gets complicated in, um, well, we don't have really good evidence about how kids would do in an intact family with their kin in the picture. And of course, in the United States, in the last 20 years, we've seen immigrants coming in from the Middle East and from Asia um, that often have that extended family model you know, working out for them. Um, and I haven't seen anything kind of look specifically at the impact of an intact family plus kin in the picture mm -hmm. for kids. We do know, however, based upon work that my mentor at Princeton did, Sarah McClanahan, that kids are being raised by a single mom and another member of their kinship network, usually grandma. So you've got you know, right. two adults in the household um, do about as poorly as kids who are being raised just by a single mother. And, and the, the thought there is that oftentimes if it's mom and grandma raising the kids, um, you know, there can be some kind of tension or diff, you know, about how best to you know, handle this. Um, mm -hmm. and so it just, it doesn't end up really comparing to having, um, you know, two married parents uh, raising the kid. And then also we see too, that when it comes to uh, even, you know, biological parents, the cohabitation does not compare to marriage. You know, and when you talk about these issues in public, a lot of elites in media and especially in the academic and policy communities, they want to kind of blur the lines between cohabitation and marriage. They want to talk mm -hmm. about stable two-parent households. The, uh, the reality though is that <laughs> kind of talking about stable two-parent households and cohabitation in the same phrase is, you know, unfortunately really nonsensical because um, marriage is just much more stable for, uh, for family life um, here in the U.S. and even in Europe. And a lot of, again, a lot of elites think that cohabitation in Sweden and Norway and France and the U.K. is just as stable as marriage. But, um, you know, work that I've done uh, with Laurie DeRose, um, fellow sociologist, suggests that that's not the case. That there's just more instability, even in Europe, when you don't have that public ceremony with family and friends kind of gathering around the couple to express their support, you know, to buy into the relationship and also for the couple themselves to kind of publicly celebrate um, and signal their commitment to one another and to their, to their local, you know, network of family and friends. Um, so there's just now, there's not, an advantage to burning your ships, right? That's what you do when you get married. <laughs> exactly. No, you're sending a, it's like, yeah, it's like a flare, a signal flare up in the your community. Yeah. That you're, yeah. You two are, you know, are, um, uh, Permanently committed, exactly. Yeah. And the reason I ask is, is partly, um, you know, my wife is one of nine, and uh, most of the family stayed in Alaska. And it arouses a great envy on my part when I go up there and I see how, first of all, the amount of division of labor, you know, stuff where every kid can get picked up or dropped off or covered or babysat or whatever, right? just because there's just so much family around, but there's also intact, you know, marriages as well. And I think there is a richness there that's lost that I, you know, I wish 
you know, it's, it's hard for me to tell my daughter, go play with your cousins when they're 5,000 right. miles away. Um, exactly. But, um, so, so and this is a delicate question, but how, how much of all of this stuff about the bad outcomes, the, the, the deleterious effects of single parent households, how much of this is just because men are really problem, boys are really problematic that, that, first of all, you see girls are doing better than boys, right? Um, is it that just boys require a different kind of social socialization than girls do? I'm, I'm not, I don't want to get too deep in sort of into evolutionary psychology or anything like that, but it does seem like it, a lot of the time what you're really talking about is the, the, the need for boys to have strong father figures who can help socialize them and model good behavior for them. Is Right. So there's a fascinating new essay called The Disparate Effects of Family Structure by Melanie Wasserman, who's a professor of economics at UCLA um, in a prestigious journal called The Future of Children. And in this um, essay, she makes the argument that you're kind of um, pointing towards um, by, you know, saying in a variety of ways, in her words, quote, the evidence supports an emerging consensus that growing up in a family without biological married parents produces more adverse consequences for boys than for girls. Um, and she's looking particularly at sort of things like, um, you know, uh, schooling, uh, delinquency, um, incarceration, um, labor market outcomes for young adults. And again, her argument is that, you know, the evidence would suggest that there's something about the sort of the intact two-parent family that redounds the benefit more of boys than girls. I think there's a lot of truth to that argument, although she does acknowledge that when it comes to what we call internalizing behaviors, things like being anxious or depressed, um, girls are more likely to sort of struggle with those kinds of behaviors. Um, boys are more likely to externalize, um, mm -hmm. like being delinquent, for instance, getting in fights, et cetera. Um, and on the internalizing fronts, I think the family structure affects, um, you know, single parenthood, instability, all that stuff is more likely to affect girls. Um, but on things, again, like schooling, uh, delinquency, crime, uh, future labor market performance, I think that boys pay a bigger price for um, family breakdown than, than do girls. And why is that? Well, I think uh, there are a couple of things uh, that she touches on that others have touched on. One is that yeah, you have kind of the absence of, of the male role model in most single parent families. It's usually mom mm -hmm. and moms tend to invest more time and more affection in their daughters than their sons. And so if dad's not there, you know, and dads tend to invest more time and affection in their sons compared to their daughters. Right. And so in, in the household, it looks like boys can play a, a bigger price, sorry, pay a bigger price for an absent father. But what's interesting about this new essay by Wasserman is she's talking to you about kind of the neighborhood story mm -hmm. and how what happens today in our society is that because family structure is so closely correlated to income and neighborhood, that what happens for boys who are being raised in single parent households, usually by their mother, is that they're being raised in working class and poor neighborhoods where um, there are fewer dads in the neighborhood, where mm -hmm. there is more social disorganization where the schools are not as strong. And so sort of the, the, the larger social environment boys and girls are confronting is, um, you know, is worse. And in that context, boys are more likely to fall into trouble than our girls. Um, and so 
what we've seen with the them, consequences of trouble for boys are going to be worse than for right, girls too. Right. And so there, yeah, exactly. With the exception of teen pregnancy. So, right, right, right. um, and her mentor, David Otter at MIT did a, a big study with colleagues on a huge population of kids in, in Florida and their innovation was to look at brothers and sisters, you know, mm-hmm. so they're kind of same family environment. Um, and what they found is that, you know, four kids in Florida, um, who were missing a father, um, much bigger gender gap between brother and sister and a lot of these negative outcomes than poor kids who had both mom and dad at home. So mm-hmm. again, this is just an example of how we're kind of, you know, we're kind of figuring out um, how much dads matter for, uh, for boys when it comes to schooling and, and, and work down the road. Um, so one of the points I often try to hammer home with people who are having kids for the first time is um, there's a lot of there's there, there's a lot of self serving talk about quality time with your kids, and I'm all in favor of quality time with your kids, but not if it comes at the expense of quantity time, um, because you can't schedule that special moment, <laughs> you know, that special sure. epiphany or right, that special right. fatherly or motherly lesson that you give to your kids. It's a numbers game, and the more time you actually can spend with your kids, um, it just seems the greater impact that you'll have, which is why I, I, mean, I always wished I had more kids, got out of a different plan. But, like, um, I always tried to – I travel a lot whenever possible, particularly when she was younger. I tried to take my daughter with me, and, you know, and that kind of thing is um, – is that borne out in the data? Is it, you know – I mean – you get the same benefits from a dad being in the home if the dad is always working. I mean, providing obviously is for the family is important, all that kind of stuff. But at, where do you see a data? Do you see in the data a trade-off there between sort of absenteeism and results for for kids? Shy yes, of right. actually not being home at all. Right. So I think for kids, it's both kind of. I mean, there are obviously a lot of things that go, on, but I think sort of attention and affection. Um, you know, matter a lot and attention measured in, in part in terms of time spent with one's kids. Um, and so we know that um, when it comes to things like delinquency, depression, and teenage pregnancies, um, not surprisingly, you know, for instance, girls do a lot better on those outcomes when their father is not just present, but emotionally engaged with them. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the time matters. And, um, if you've got a really high-powered professional career, um, your kids are going to take a hit um, if you're not able to kind of, you know, um, spend a decent amount of time with them in the evenings and the weekends. Yeah, I mean, I just, in my own personal experience, growing up in New York, I, the, the kid, in some ways, there were kids who, whose parents weren't divorced, but they might as well have been because they're just never around, you know. Right. And right. those right. are the ones who got into a lot of trouble too. Um, and so I don't know because I haven't seen you at AEI in a long time. So I actually don't know where you come down on the whole argument about capitalism, common good capitalism and nationalism or, you know, economic nationalism, all these kinds of things. But um, it does seem to me that whichever way you come down on all of this stuff, that um, the one of the basic points that whether you're pro-capitalist or anti-capitalist or someplace in between, that the decline of 
jobs that were oriented towards strong backs has right. been one of the factors that has declined. You know, it used to be if you had a good work ethic and a strong back, you could basically have a middle class life. You may not, you wouldn't get rich, but you do okay. And in automation and service economy and all of these kinds of things have have, have changed that dynamic a bit. Um, explain to me how you see that picture and um, how big a factor is it. Yeah, so I'm I'm more in the common good um, capitalism framework, if you will. Though there are obviously lots of different terms out there for these debates, no, but and my my concern here is about um, sort of I think especially how we've sort of seen a growing share of and our colleague Nick Eberstein has been writing about this obviously at, at length um, earlier. But as you know, um, we've seen a dramatic increase in the share of working age men who are not in the labor force, right? You know, um, and um, you know, Scott Winship at, you know, the Social Capital Project in the Senate would say it's primarily about sort of cultural changes that have made work less necessary and less important. Charles Murray might echo, you know, echo that same point. Um, you know, many of my colleagues in sociology would say, William Julius Wilson, for instance, at Harvard now would say it's about a shift in the economy that makes, um, you know, work for men who don't have college degrees, um, less stable and less accessible. And, you know, from my perspective, it's both this cultural story on the one hand and this economic story on the other hand. And, you know, again, what we do see is that men who don't have college degrees are much, much less stably employed. Um, and that's important because men who are not stably employed are much less attractive, even in 2020, as husbands, and they're much more likely to get divorced uh, if they end up getting married um, than their fellow men who are stably employed. Um, so I think as we kind of think about the kinds of, you know, um, policies and, you know, messages that we want to sort of send to strengthen marriage and to bridge this marriage divide, we need to think about ways to reconnect um, working class men to full-time employment. Um, mm -hmm. And so concretely, that means also, I think, um, on the educational front, um, doing a lot more to promote uh, what's been called vocational education, uh, to promote apprenticeships, to kind of create pathways for young men in high school to kind of see how they can make a productive contribution to um, the world and how they can develop a sense of, you know, their own self-confidence, their own uh, worth. Um, and then also, of course, make a decent you know, salary and find a decent paying full-time job, um, you know, in, the, in their 20s. And so I think if we can kind of do more both in the educational arena and also in some ways in the economic arena to focus our attention on, you know, increasing the share of working class, um, particularly men who are employed, that would go, um, you know, that would go a ways towards mm -hmm. helping to bridge this, um, you know, this marriage divide that we've seen grow up in the U.S. in the last couple of decades. Yeah, that seems, just given where the cultural environment is trying to save the males, as someone once put it, just seems so counterintuitive because all the talk is about how we need to do more for women and and, and all that. And I'm all in favor of doing more for women, you know, all that. But um, a lot of the new jobs coming online are, are again, speaking in gross generalizations, more suited toward traditionally more suited towards women, you know, uh, healthcare providers and these kinds of things. Sure. Um, and, uh, just seems like it's going to be culturally a heavy lift. I mean, 
Germany, which has a great vocational right. training system, do they have better results in terms of marriage because of it? Well, they have more. St- they do have more stability in terms of now. Ma- of course, and again, this is as you know the the issue here is that all these things. You know, we've got cultural forces, we've got policy forces, and economic forces all intersecting. So, I think in Germany, kind of the cultural support for marriage is even sort of weaker than it is in the U.S. Um, mm. But I think there's more stability in Germany um, in terms of family structure than there is in the U.S. Um, so. Um, but yeah, I think having a model on the education side, more like Germany, would be helpful for um, giving working class Americans a better shot at, at, at doing well in, in the 21st century economy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a strong case for it, regardless of its impact on marriage. I mean, it would be nice right. to think it would help it. Sure. Um, it certainly wouldn't hurt it. Um, but the, okay, so this is just a strict factual question of single parent households, which are overwhelmingly women, right? It's Right. About 80% of single parents are women. Do, do we know the circumstances by which they came to have a child? I mean, how much of it was an unwanted pregnancy or how much of it was a desired pregnancy or was it a relationship that went bad? I mean, how does that break down? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I guess I would answer this a little bit different way. So when I first started studying these issues, I was concerned most about the impact of divorce on mm-hmm. kids. And uh, divorce was a huge engine of family instability for a long time. But because marriage itself has become more stable since 1980, um, what's happened is that sort of the primary engine for family instability now is, is having a child outside of wedlock. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, at the same time today, most women who are having kids outside of marriage are having them actually in a cohabiting relationship. Mm-hmm. So today, if you were to, you know, to look at kids being born outside of marriage in a clear majority of those cases, mom and mom and dad, and usually mom and dad are, are living together. So there's a relationship of some sort, you know, mm-hmm. there. Um, although often it is the case that the, the pregnancy is not intended, um, in, in, you know, um, a large share of those of those cases, um, but they are in a relationship and they're living together, um, and so that's sort of what we see. The problem, of course, is that those relationships don't tend to go the distance. Um, and right now, kids born to cohabiting parents are about twice as likely to see their uh, you know their parents break up um, in about the first five years compared to kids who are born to um, you know to married parents. Um, so. You know, um, and part of the reason for that is that reinforcing mechanism that actually getting married has in terms of, first of all, upping your commitment, but also sort of dragooning in other forces of civil society to your aid. I mean, is that the part of the argument? Right. Now, of course, it's it's important to acknowledge here that cohabiting couples having kids tend to be less educated um, and more lower income, you know. And so part of the story there is that there's just, um, They've got less resources to bring to their family life and you know, to their households. Um, and so if you're struggling to pay the rent, you know, or if you've just lost your job, obviously, um, that increases the odds you're going to break up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, I think the, the, the problem right now for many working class and poor couples having kids um, outside of marriage is that they haven't locked in um, a kind of public expression of commitment, you know, via marriage that sort of brought in their, their, their kin and their and their friends into the relationship. 
But also what happens too is that a lot of young adults who are not married having kids, they move very quickly into sex, um, into co-residency and into childbearing. Mm -hmm. And so they haven't really kind of taken the time to, to get to know the person and to sort of figure out if this is a good fit for them as a couple. Um, and so, I mean, you've had a daughter, uh, when, you, when you have a child, it's a very stressful thing. <laughs> and so you're putting a lot of stress on your relationship when you have that baby. Um, and so if you don't have, you know, uh, some time under your belt, you know, some sense of a strong mutual commitment, don't have both, you know, in-laws kind of in the picture helping you out, it's just much more difficult to navigate you know, that transition to parenthood for cohabiting couples than it is for the men. And much couple. easier to escape it, at least for the man. Yeah, although it's, that's correct. Well, I think it's, you know, there's certainly, um, you know, nowadays, there are plenty of couples, you know, cohabiting couples where there's a lot of friction, you know, in the relationship from both sides, you know. Mm. Um, and so guys can leave, um, and many do, but guys can also get pushed out. Mm -hmm. as well in these situations when when they come up against the inevitable <laughs> conflicts and disappointments that revolve around that transition to parenthood because it's so stressful so is there do you know what is the prevailing like so i know the data says that men become more i think you even referenced it earlier that men become more productive when they get married and when they have kids and my own private theory about that is as much as i would like to say it's because you know I'm rising to the occasion and I am, um, I'm doing, I'm, I'm providing as much mastodon for my family as I can. And all of these kinds of things. I just knowing en enough of my friends who've had kids, some of it is just sort of like, it's the only legitimate excuse you can have for not helping out with the kid. <laughs> um, is there a, is there an explanation about why it is that men become more production productive? I mean, I don't think it has to be one thing, but it's, it, I'm just kind of curious. Yeah, I, I think what happens is that marriage engenders a sense of responsibility on the part of, of men. And that when you then you kind of um, package in fatherhood to that, um, and when you keep it a, a joint package between marriage and fatherhood, um, you know, men's both internal and external, um, you know, incentives to kind of get with the program increase dramatically. Um, and so we do find that men tend to work more hours after they get married and that that increases even more when they have kids. Um, their salaries tend to go up. Um, they're also less likely to be fired compared to their peers who have equivalent credentials. Um, hmm. So, you know, of course, there's a big debate in the, in the sciences about whether or not this is kind of a selection effect. That is, are the kinds of guys who are kind of either already responsible or kind of ready to kind of make that transition into mm -hmm. sort of adulthood more, uh, more profoundly. Um, is that the story or is it the story that marriage itself is the institution that kind of basically domesticates men? Um, and I think it's both, you know, I think that, um, you know, what we're seeing, especially today, and I'd say this in some ways is really deeply unfortunate, but we're seeing today, um, Jonah, that both marriage and parenthood are becoming a lot more selective. Mm -hmm. So Lyman Stone, who you talked to recently, estimates that 25% of young adults today, women, I should say, will never have kids. And I, I'm estimating in some work I'm doing right now that a, almost a third of young adults will never marry um, for you know, a complex of both economic and cultural reasons. Um, and I think that's 
I think it's deeply, deeply tragic that we're mm-hmm. seeing going going forward such high rates of non-marriage and non-parenthood. If you look at Japan, it's just it's 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 a train wreck for a lot of older people, you know, especially um, at the end of their lives, they're just you know they're dying alone and you know no one no one's visiting them, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think it's also kind of what's in some ways, you know, good about this, right, is that the kinds of people now today who are marrying and the kinds of people who are having kids are, I think, much more intentional about everything. Mm-hmm. And um, we are seeing an uptick in the share of kids, for instance, being raised in intact married families. Um, and I think that surprises everyone, including me, that that's, that's happening. But I think it's partly a, a fact or a trend that's related to this sort of way in which we have made as a society both getting married and increasingly now having kids as something that you have to really choose mm-hmm. um, and, work and, and work at. And so the kinds of people who are doing this tend to be more likely to um, understand that marriage requires work and sacrifice um, and understand that being a good parent requires um, uh, work and sacrifice. But of course, both have substantial. Um, you know, uh, returns on those investments. But that's, I mean, I mean, this kind of reminds me of the life of Julia stuff and we don't have to get too deep into the politics of it, but if, if everything that you've said and you've written about how, you know, it's becoming more self-selective, that there are these concrete economic benefits that come and there's a chicken or the egg thing about, you know, who's, know people get married and they become more successful and successful people tend to get married and you can do that all day long but it seems to me and i i know scott winship has talked about how if you factor in uh single parent households income inequality data looks and it has a big effect on how you look at income inequality data, you can see how this becomes a major class divide right and then yeah, right and then also that fuels a certain kind of politics, because if most people aren't getting married and don't have kids, they're going to have expectations about what the role of the government is versus sure, people who right. have extended networks of civil society and whatnot. No, it, it definitely is the case that, you know, um, people who are not stably married are more likely to look to the government as a source of financial security. Um, that's, you know, definitely a big part of the the story of our politics over the last 30 years. and 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 potentially going forward for a while as well. Yeah, I tried to encourage my wife um, to write a book called um, uh, "My Husband, the State." Uh, and she, she's so <laughs> far wisely, wisely passed on that. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, you know, w- just one point before we before you solve all of this for us. Um, um, I think it was in your National Affairs essay a few years ago, but. You've written how like one of the major cultural problems or cultural drivers of all of this has been that we have moved away from uh, we've moved towards a romantic definition of marriage, right? That you have right. to find your soulmate. your your soulmate, that one special person in all of the world, right. right? And God bless if you find that person, but it, you, we used to have a more pragmatic view of marriage. Um, can you explain that? And and how in the world are you going to get non, at least non-immigrants to buy into a more pragmatic understanding of marriage. So, yeah, the argument, obviously, kind of a romantic view of marriage has been with us for a very long time. Um, And, you know, um, well, but but I think in the 70s, it sort of became a lot more salient with kind of the rise of the the me decade and and the me generation. Um, 
So people came to sit or see marriage as a, a way to become happy and fulfilled. Um, and it was about kind of being in love rather than lo- loving your spouse and your kids. Um, and so it's a much more kind of me-centered approach to marriage. Um, and that's been with us, you know, in important ways since the 70s. And um, the pop culture, there obviously there are thousands of, of movies, tens of thousands of, of pop songs that articulate this idea in one way or another. But at the same time, I would argue that what's happened since the 1980s is that we've been kind of gradually moving among the marrieds to kind of an implicit um, model that I call kind of the family first model of marriage, where you kind of mm-hmm. recognize that you're there for your spouse, um, she's there for you, um, that you establish a financial foundation beneath you know, um, uh, your marriage that sustains the family, that your marriage is most profoundly, most importantly, you know, a, a, a way of stabilizing your kids' lives and giving them security as well. And so this sort of family first model, I think, has been kind of um, emerging kind of um, organically in some ways among elites who have, as I said before, developed an implicit appreciation for how much they and especially their kids benefit from doing it this way and from turning you know, away from that me first model that dominated the 1970s um, and that more romanticized model. So um, there's also this idea, too, that, you know, we saw marriage as a way of sort of climbing Mount Maslow, you know, of kind of realizing um, that you could find, you know, um, personal growth, fulfillment, self-expression in marriage. This is sort of, the, I think, the impulse in the 70s among many couples. And that wasn't so important to think about your kin, your kids, or economics in marriage, right? But I'm saying today, it's 2020. Mm. A pandemic is at loose, you know, around us. Millions of people are losing their jobs. None of us know what the next year holds before us. And if you've got half a brain and you're married, um, I think you hopefully are even more appreciative today than you were six months ago of how much you depend upon your spouse, um, how much your kids depend upon your marriage, how much your parents or your in-laws depend upon you, know, you as a family. My point simply is that I think in times of trial and tribulation, mm-hmm. people are more likely to appreciate sort of the classic understanding of, of marriage and kinship and more likely to embrace an ethic of commitment. And we did see divorce come down by about 20% since the last Great Recession. I think divorce is going to come down even more in the wake of this pandemic-related recession. So again, for those who are married, the idea here is that marriage um, comes out of this even stronger. And at least some share of Americans uh, develop, often implicitly, because the media and the pop culture don't tend to kind of give much or the academy give much support to this idea. But I think there's a way in which people are kind of, you know, they're understanding um, at some level, either explicitly or often more implicitly, that family stability is good for them and for uh, their kids um, and and for their kin more generally. Yeah, it's a point I make often on this podcast about the importance of social capital um, and, you know, the... You know, the old, the phrase I always use to explain it is when people say, you got to be careful because you could be homeless tomorrow. And 
the more social capital you have, the more ludicrous that claim is, right? right. You know, um, right. I could lose you short of some sort of trading places scenario where the Duke brothers systematically dismantle my entire life. I've got enough social capital, right? That I can sleep on couches. I can go live with my wife's family in Alaska. I can do all sorts of things, and the the living, breathing heart of social capital formation, which is the thing I take away from a lot of your writings, is the family, right? And that, exactly. And it it's it's the it's it's the battery that fuels social capital formation in communities, right? And and you take it away or you tinker with it and the community social capital implodes as well. Um, right. And uh, it just seems to me that's a really hard, for all the reasons you suggest, it's a hard argument to make, particularly to young hormone-fueled people who imbibe a lot of popular culture and have a romantic understanding of what love and commitment is all about. Um, but so, you know, in the in the... Time we have left before you get too sick of me. Um, if you could do three things, you know, within reason, right? Uh, to actually, you, you have, you got a majority of Congress that is going to listen to you. You got a president that is going to listen to you within the realm of the reasonable. Um, what would be like three things you would do to, to actually at least nudge the trend lines more in the direction that you'd like? Um, so the first thing I would say is that I would prefer to control <laughs> Southern California than the halls of Congress if I could, right? <laughs> um, I mean, seriously, right? But if I could sort mm -hmm. of take take command of 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 uh, Hollywood for you know for a couple of years, that would be my first uh, my first objective. But on, on that score, in terms of culture, I think just kind of getting the message out there that the success sequence is the way to do it when it comes to family formation. You know, that you get some kind of education, you get a full time job. You get married before having kids. And by doing those three things, you kind of slowed things down and you have gotten a bit more mature, hopefully gotten to know your partner pretty well before marrying and having kids with, with that person. Um, and if you do those three things, you know, your odds of, of doing well economically, but also having a stable family, which I think is mm -hmm. even more important, are much, are much higher. So getting, again, getting the success sequence idea out to a large a share of the population through some kind of public campaign would be wonderful. Um, the second thing that I would do is to uh, work on strengthening the labor market for working class Americans, like we talked about before. And that could come both in terms of like strengthening vocational education, apprenticeship training, but also um, looking at some kind of wage subsidy um, and moving away from uh, the, I, the ITC um, and just towards a straight wage subsidy um, on the economic side. And then the third thing that I would do is to end the marriage penalty in our means-tested programs. So things like Medicaid, for instance, um, tend to penalize marriage among working-class couples with kids. Um, and it actually, it's interesting right now, if you're, if you're really poor and you have kids, um, welfare programs do not penalize marriage because you're below that threshold, right? Mm -hmm. But if your income is like between $25,000 and $50,000 as, sort of as a couple, um, it often is the case that getting married is not a smart move when it comes to you know, Medicaid or food stamps or childcare subsidies. Um, and so I, we've actually addressed a lot of the marriage penalties facing upper income couples in the income tax, um, uh, in our federal income taxes. But we've not done the same thing with our means tested programs. And so I would love for us to um, 
for instance, sort of double the thresholds for Medicaid and food stamps, childcare subsidies for couples with kids uh, uh, under the age of five. Um, there'd be some costs there, obviously, but it would sort of send both a clear cultural signal and it would also kind of provide a practical reality um, that, you know, couples did not have to sort of decide between, you know, getting married and getting medical coverage, which is, you know, I talked to a couple here in Virginia a little while ago and working class couple with two beautiful little daughters and they're cohabiting because they've, you know, they sat down at the kitchen table and ran the numbers. And, you know, if they were to marry, they'd lose access to Medicaid, which was, you know, the mom's only access yeah. to healthcare for herself and for her kids. So that's the third thing that I would do is address the marriage penalties um, in our social welfare programs here in the United States. And if you got control of Hollywood, what what kind of what would be the storyline of the movie that would <laughs> turn things around? Yeah, well, and, and to be fair, I mean, I you know my my progressive colleagues you know uh, hold me to account in good ways, and they'd say, well, there you know there there are certainly shows out there, right, that do a good job of of depicting uh, you know, and I'm not looking for some kind of rose colored treacly you know. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff. Roseanne, um, for all its flaws, was actually pretty good about some of this. Kind of thing. Right. Um, and I mean, there are there there are particularly on television, there are a number of shows that actually end up doing a good job of presenting family life. So I but I just I just wish we in, in especially kind of in our music and our movies, we would kind of more consistently sort of show again, not a rose-colored view of marriage, but actually a truthful view of marriage. You know, mm-hmm. so like this, this movie, The Marriage, marriage Story, got so much critical acclaim and attention. And it's basically just sort of celebrating divorce, mm-hmm. you know, for really no good reason at all. Um, and, you know, why can't we kind of actually do a better job of sort of, sort of representing how couples today, and, and of course, many more couples are doing it today than they were doing it in the 70s, successfully navigate the challenges mm-hmm. of family life. Um, so um, that's that's what my hope would be. Um, and also, in particular, kind of giving people the sense, too, that there's sort of a long-term, short-term horizon, right? And if you kind of, if you approach your relationships with a desire for short-term pleasure, um, at least initially, oftentimes you can get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but longer term, you're setting yourself up and your partners uh, for a world of pain. Oftentimes, world of heartache. All right, Brad Wilcox. Thanks so much for coming on the Remnant. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on today, John. I appreciate it. Okay, so uh, Bradley has has left the Zoom thingamabob, and um, uh, I hope people appreciate that there was so little punditry and so little Trump talk. And um, and you should check out the show notes because we're gonna have a bunch of stuff from. Uh, that Bradley was referencing in today's episode and um, some other stuff that he's written, including that national affairs piece I mentioned. Um, and uh, um, please go to the dispatch.com to get all the interesting stuff that I referenced earlier. And uh, when you're listening to this, um, I will probably be on the snake river rafting and, um, and being a general liability to the rest of my extended family um, in terms of any uh, dangerous um, uh, sort of adventure kind of thing. Um, but I'm really looking forward to getting the hell out of Washington. And um, other than that, uh, that's all I got. So I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
Marriage. Marriage is what brings us together today. Marriage, that blessed arrangement, that dream within a dream.